Okay, so we try a few things over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas. You guys are so far away, I should roll that up. Um, in regards to just tackling some subjects and stuff around Christmas, of um, uh, just of some different subjects. So tonight, I want to talk about... I want... It's not going forward. Whoops, there it is now. Okay. Why is the virgin conception so important? Because there's a lot of... I'm amazed. We were listening to some things this week, and I'm absolutely amazed at the shift in the broader circles of evangelicalism away from standard teachings that have been around for years. And there are some in their deconstruction are moving so-called Christian churches to where, yes, Jesus is an important teacher, and yes, he's this, but they move away from this. And it's just outstanding. I just can't believe how they can do it. So we're going to talk about this tonight. So for those that are... Am I losing batteries, or is it... There we go. Might have to point at you each time. (laughs) Maybe not. Okay, so if you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And we're going to point out some things here that I think are really important. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God... So that's the first thing we need to know is God. And you'll see I've highlighted it in blue when we're talking about the Lord. So from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin. Okay, so now this is important because here Luke is underlying some things for us. So, okay, this, this angel's gone to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name is Mary. Now we're connecting... God did this whole incident, but now we're connecting the virgin with Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one of the Lord. Uh, The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Now remember, Mary's connected back to being the virgin that we're talking to. For you have found favor with, oh, I missed a God in there, sorry. That should be blue. With God, because it's important to see where these words are coming in. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We recognize Jesus, part of the Trinity. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the six months with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary, the virgin, said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this was the announcement. And there are some things that we really need to think through in the announcement. There are some clear connections. Throughout this, Luke connects Mary is the virgin. And he wants you to get that because he says it numerous times. Mary, virgin. I want you to understand that. And then he goes on to want us to understand God. And as you see how many times he talks about the Lord and God, it's, it's in it all. God is in it all. And also the fact that it's his will. This is what God wants done. So through this whole encounter with the angel, he's trying to make Mary aware, this is the Lord's doing. This is all God's doing. Then Luke makes it clear that the conception is from the Holy Spirit. That's important when we're talking about this. That the conception of this child with inside Elizabeth, the God-man, is of the Holy Spirit. And then the whole result is the birth of Jesus Christ. What are you laughing at? Oh, sorry. Mary. Okay, so there are some clear connections that he's doing. Now let's look at the other part of the Christmas story. Back into Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. So again, Matthew's trying to connect us with some things. Okay, God, his mother was Mary. So we have the God-man connection back to Mary, the Virgin Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, okay? Polite way of saying there had been no sexual relations to this point. She was found to be with child from, and again, there's that connection, to the Holy Spirit. So the child was conceived not of man, but of God through the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man, okay, so he's just a man, and unwilling being a just man, not just a man, being a just man, and willing to put, not willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay? He's a righteous guy. Didn't want to really cause any problems being just. He just, okay, I'll just divorce her quietly. And that's important to remember that, and we'll show you why in a little bit. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel, so God shows up again, through, a, through an angel, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. So now we're going to connect Joseph back to the throne of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. So again, there's that connection from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord, so there's that will of God again, had spoken by the prophet. And here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So Matthew and Luke are very clear to distinguish 
that the Christ child was conceived of the Holy Spirit and Joseph was not part of this. 100% God and 100% man. So the incarnation, that's what we're talking about. And the incarnation is a theological term to indicate that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh, came to dwell among us. Uh, and that's actually what it means, the act of being made flesh. And it comes from the Latin version of John 1.14. So we're going to go to John 1 now. Because it's important to also, when we're talking about this, to understand the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, we see here God all over this as John introduces what's going on here. The Word was a title for Christ. So, in the beginning was Christ, and the Word was with God. Jesus, or Christ, was with God, in the, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without Christ was not anything made that was made. And in Christ was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, even in his introduction to who Christ is in his incarnation, it's all tied back to God the Father. And then on to John 1.14, later in the chapter. And the Word became flesh. This is John's version, sort of, of the Christmas story. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as if the only Son, Christ, from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the incarnation. Christ coming to dwell among us. Now, if the doctrine of, of the virgin conception falls, if that's not true, and that's what they really try to peck away at, Jesus is a mere man. If Jesus is a mere man, then God didn't come and dwell in flesh. The incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation falls. If the doctrine of the incarnation falls and Jesus is a mere man, then the doctrine of salvation falls. And if the doctrine of salvation falls, then the Christian faith crumbles. You and I are still dead in our sins. We're still living apart from, Christ, from God. That is why people so often go after the, the virgin conception or the virgin birth. Because if that fails, then the Christian faith crumbles. There's nothing left. There's not a leg to stand on. It is a key doctrine. So, we noted some of these already. These verses are significant for a few reasons. One, they display the Trinity. So we see the tri-unity of God. In there, you see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives um, conception. The Father, it's the Father's plan what's happening, and the virgin conception is that of the Son of Jesus Christ being incarnated in flesh. So in here, it's significant for that reason. Okay, we also note that in here, if we look back at Matthew 1.16, Matthew protects the virgin conception. He's very careful in when he writes. 1.16 says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
this is in the genealogies, of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Notice, he doesn't call Joseph the father of Christ. It's Mary of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. That of whom is a singular, and it's feminine. It's a feminine pronoun, which means Mary only is connected to the birth of Christ. Joseph's connected to Mary as a husband, but in the original language, only Mary is connected to Jesus. So he's very protective of that virgin birth and that Christ, Jesus, is not the son of Joseph, but rather conceived by the Holy Spirit and is 100% God and 100% man. So some objections. Why do people object to this? Why do they get all upset about it? Well, first, people get upset about the miraculous, the supernatural aspect to it which amazes me because of all the things that they believe in, and it's, they won't believe in this. They believe in all kinds of other weird stuff, like aliens coming down to New Mexico or Nevada, wherever it is. Um, C.S. Lewis. Thus you will hear people say, the early Christians believed that Christ was the son of a virgin, but we know that this is scientifically impossible and a scientific impossibility. Such people seem to have an idea that belief in miracles arose at a period when men were so ignorant of the course of nature that they did not perceive a miracle to be contrary to it. So basically they're saying that Joseph was ignorant and didn't know where babies came from. And neither did anybody else around them. Okay, let's look at Joseph's response to this. Joseph's first response in Matthew 1.19 was probably the most natural response any of us would have. What? You're pregnant and it's not mine. Okay, let's just divorce you. Now, he was a just man, so he's going to be nice about it. But that was his first response, right? Just quietly. Send her away. Let's just be done with this. But then he came to believe. Well, Why? Well, Matthew 124, we know that the Lord visited him through a dream, through an angel. But he had to be convinced by the dream and in his own heart that, wait a second, this is what the angel said. This is the truth, what Mary's telling me, that she was in the presence of an angel who, who told her what would happen and that she's not lying to me. So Joseph knew where babies were coming from. But yet he was convinced through probably talking with Mary and then again through the angel in a dream that he came to believe, yes, this child is, is going to be 100% God and 100% man. It's a miraculous birth. And I'm sure Joseph, I, I like some of the stories where they talk about Joseph and like, how do you raise a Savior, a Messiah? I'm sure those things went through his mind because here God-man is coming into his household. The other thing I think, and, and, and I go back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So when Christians start to doubt the virgin birth and the virgin conception, I think back that Joseph had it right. Joseph's God was big. And, and that's a question I think we have to ask ourselves again and again. How big is your God? There are so many Christian colleges now that are, are falling by the wayside when it comes to creationism. They, they won't stand in that anymore. There was another college, I forget, I don't even know if they gave a name to it, 
in the East and the States that had a little mini revolt from their faculty and they've given in on the pronouns and genders and everything. And they've just, it's not worth the fight anymore. Um, some legislation introduced in the States is going to make it a huge mess and fight. We already have that fight in Canada. And it comes, it comes down to, you can say what you want in the church, but when you go outside the doors, you have to toe the government line. It's basically where the legislation goes. That's basically where our authorities would like us to be. And you have to watch what you say outside the doors. You misgender somebody and you can find yourself up um, with the Human Rights Commission. And so there's lots of things going on that we need to be in prayer. But the biggest thing we need to be is witnessing to people. So how big is your God? I think Joseph had it right. Okay, one of the other objections is that this was borrowed. That the writers of the New Testament just borrowed this fictitious story from Greek mythology or Babylonian mythology. There's a problem there, though. There is no recorded hero amongst their mythological gods that claims to have an origin from a virgin birth. So to say that the story was borrowed, you would have to borrow from something. There isn't a something to be borrowed from. The other thing, it, it just doesn't fit that the Jewish writers would borrow from pagan mythology. They didn't do it anywhere else. Uh, I, I know that they try to talk about um, the flood and that it was borrowed, but it, it just doesn't fit with what was written. And the other thing is, if you look at the Greek, Babylonian, Egyptian deities, they were born, and many of them were born through sexual relationships with a woman on earth, and they share those stories openly with you. So, so to say it's borrowed is bunk, and if somebody tells you that, they're, they're just not, they just don't know their history and their theology at all. Okay, another one, early church fathers. This is more of a proof than an objection. I probably should have put that in there. But if you go back to the early church fathers, Jesus, and I've put it there, Apostle John, and I'm going to give an unnamed apostle because we don't know who it is. But Apostle John and this unnamed apostle obviously spent three years with Jesus Christ. And if we go back through the early church fathers, we find out that Polycarp and the writings of Irenaeus link him to John by name. So they talk about Polycarp being with John and being uh, sort of a disciple of John and spending time with him. But there's also an unnamed apostle that they link Polycarp to. Um, so we're not sure who that is, but he's linked with John the, ba or John the Apostle and this unnamed apostle, whoever that might be. When we go down, Ignatius of Antioch is linked to John by tradition. So we can't find it in, in writings to confirm it, but we can link Ignatius of Antioch by tradition to John. And if not by tradition, we know that there may have been some crossover with at least John the Apostle because he is linked to Polycarp in writing as that they were friends. They hung around. They wrote to each other. They spent time with each other. And we know that Polycarp spent time with John the Apostle. Then we go down one more la layer. So we have Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. Ignatius of Antioch, his writings can be dated somewhere around 110, 117. And in his writings... He confirms the virgin birth. And why this is important is going back to the next slide is we can see a connection, bit of a connection back to John 
either one-on-one -on -one or through Polycarp. Okay, and then we have Irenaeus's writings, who John discipled, and in his writings, about 180 A.D., he confirms the virgin birth too. So when we look at the early church fathers and we go back to the earliest writings after, after the New Testament, we begin to find the early church fathers, they're not questioning the virgin birth. They're fully believing it, fully part of their doctrine or their teachings and their writings. Does that make sense how I followed it through? I tried to make sense of that. Okay, so early church fathers show that the virgin birth can be um, substantiated through their knowledge and, and through their connections. Now to the Isaiah controversy, because this is where a lot of people will pick up, and it's been a long time since I've engaged on this one. I did it in seminary, but Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call... And, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The question is, Jesus fulfills, does he fulfill this? And that's where a lot of people, and you'll find writings from New Testament people and others that will say, well, no, we, we think that Matthew, and, and they got it wrong. We think Matthew got it wrong when he wrote it. So here's in the New Testament, Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There it is in the Old Testament. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. So the, the, the controversy comes that there are those who believe that Matthew misinterprets it and misunderstands um, the Isaiah 7.14 passage. And it all revolves around one word. The word virgin. In Hebrew, that is Elma. And that's what's the contention. What does Elma mean? Okay. It occurs seven times in the Old Testament. In Genesis, in Psalms, in Song of Songs, in Exodus, and in Proverbs, and in Isaiah. So let's quickly look how it words. It's translated in each one of these. In Genesis 24:43, Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. In the Christian Standard Bible, which is a really good version, I'm standing out here at a spring. Let the young woman. But they put in brackets that it could mean virgin. Let the young woman who comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jug. Then again, in Exodus chapter 2, and the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl, Elma, went and called the, mother, called the child's mother. And then we see it again used in Psalm 68, 25. The singers in the front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. And the CSB, singers lead the way, the musicians follow. Among them are young women playing tambourines. So it can go back and forth depending how you want to translate this. Proverbs 30. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of the eagle in the sky, the way of the serpent on the rock, the way of a ship in the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. 
CSV translates that the way of a man with a young woman. So, is it virgin or young woman? Solomon does the same thing, Songs of Solomon. Let me kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. And then in the CSB, it's no wonder young women adore you. And then they put in an asterisk or a letter, and they say, or it could be virgins. So, in the last Song of Solomon 6.8, there are 60 queens and 80, 80 concubines and virgins without number. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and young women without number. And again, Christian Standard Bible puts an asterisk beside that to say it could read virgins. So, Alma can mean maiden. It can mean virgin, young woman, marriageable age. Made, newly married, like a lot of words, context plays into it, and, and it can go either way as far as that goes. Um, we look a little bit to Strong's. In Elma, it's a feminine, so it could be a lass. This is an old English one. Damsel, 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 um, maid or virgin. We go down to Brown dri Driver Higgs Briggs Hebrew lexicon, and we find this. A virgin, young woman of marriageable age, maid or newly married. And again, they say it's feminine in the speech form. So it's this one little word that questions everybody. So how do we decide with this? Again, just for your information, very close to that is Elam, which is a, a um, masculine, which is young man. And uh, there are two related, one in the masculine one in the feminine. So we know that it means young woman or, or virgin of some sort because they're related to each other, the two words. So context. So let's go back to context to see what it might mean. So in the context of Isaiah, the Amorites and the Israelites, okay, so we had the two kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The Israelites were seeking to conquer Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And King Ahaz was afraid. And it was Isaiah promises that they won't succeed. And that's what we talked through in verses 7 and 9. So you're, if you're in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. And then in verse 10, the Lord offers them a sign. Look, Ahaz, I, I promise you, I'm going to do this for you. Let me give you a sign. You name the sign and I'll give it to you. Now, if you want to turn there, it's Isaiah chapter 7. So the Lord offers him a sign in verse 10. In verse 12, Ahaz refuses to test God. I'm not testing you, Lord. I'm not going to test you. And God says, okay, I am going to give you a sign. And that sign is verse 14, that a virgin shall conceive. So that's the backdrop to the context. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to ref and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The people who bring upon the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house 
such days as they have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the promise here is that the first attack is going to be repelled, but there is a far worse enemy coming, and that that far worse enemy will succeed. So the first attack is going to be repelled, but the next one's going to succeed. There's a connection that we'll talk about in just a second. So who is the fulfillment of verse 14? Only a few, very few scholars hold that this is messianic only, that this verse 14 is only talking about Christ. Very, very few people hold it. So Isaiah 7, 15 through 16 suggests that verse 14 talks about a provisional fulfillment or what they call a near fulfillment. So, there's, so it's a double promise. And the possibilities of this double promise could have been Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah, which we're familiar with, some anonymous prophet, or more likely, Isaiah's son. And where we get this from is verse 3. And don't ask me to pronounce his name. I've tried it all weekend long. And I went to the prophetess, and this is Isaiah, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar, whatever. And before the boy knows how to cry, my father and mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So what we're looking at is 7.14 is likely has a double prophecy to it. It's a near fulfillment and a greater fulfillment to come. George Sinclair had this to say about this. Prophecies in the Old Testament regularly have multiple meanings. A young woman in one case, while the true and greater fulfillment will be the virgin in another case. The Old Testament regularly has God keeping his word in several different senses. For an example, in Genesis 3, the seed promised to Eve can be a future biological son, so a line of provision, but it can also be, and the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew, not the skeptic, is in fact reading the Old Testament correctly, that there's two meanings to what's happening here. So how do they draw this conclusion? They draw it from a link in chapter 7 to chapter 9. So in chapter 9, it talks about after they're going to be exiled, that there will be a return to Galilee. And there will be the great return back to the land. And in, in chapter 9, you read, for, us, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To which the Jewish people saw that as a messianic verse. And so what we do when we're looking at it, we're saying, well, wait a second, that whole section, 7 through 9, is somewhat goes together. So there's a near fulfillment to Isaiah and to the people of that time, but that verse is not completely fulfilled until the time of Christ when Jesus comes and fulfills that perfectly. And that's how Matthew was interpreting it. We also draw that conclusion from the Septuagint. The Septuagint... Um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they translate Alma, they translate it in 714, not as a young woman, but still as virgin. 
So there seems to be indicate that there were Jews, at least those who were involved in the Septuagint, which you'll see short forms as LXX, which was written around the 2nd century B.C., so before Christ. They linked chapter 7 to Isaiah chapter 9. Okay? So there was some linking going on there already before Christ was born. The problem, though, is when we go into rabbinical literature and further into other literature, there's no certain knowledge that we can say, hey, Isaiah 7 is messianic. Look, the Jews thought that at this time. There's an indication, but there's nothing we can certainly say. So how can we trust this prophecy? Well, let's look at Matthew. What was Matthew's belief when he wrote this? Well, think of Matthew's context. He had just spent three years with Christ, so he had walked with him. Uh, he connected Matthew 7 to Isaiah 9, and he learned about the virgin birth from who? He would have known Mary. He would have met Mary. So he would have learned it from Mary. He also learned of the Isaiah connection, 7 through 9, from who? Well, Christ was teaching that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He would have learned it from Jesus himself. And we have to remember that in the writings of the New Testament and all the writings of Scripture, that they're written by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it's not illegitimate for the Holy Spirit to work on the heart of Matthew to say, hey, do you see this connection between 7 and 9? And while it was partially fulfilled or a near fulfillment, there was a greater message behind what Isaiah was saying. That's perfectly legitimate because Matthew is not writing this on his own. It's through the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit. So what we have in 714 is a double prophecy or a near fulfillment and a greater fulfillment. The ultimate deliverer for the people of Israel and for us is found in Jesus Christ. That's why we can look at that verse and say that it's messianic. That's why it's spoken so much of around the Christmas time. So, I like the benediction of, um, and this comes from Reverend St. Clair himself. Friends, the invasion has begun. The deliverance is near. Jesus is Savior and Lord. He was born of a virgin. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. He will come again in glory. Believe him, trust him, follow him. Hallelujah. So if somebody starts to undermine the doctrine of the virgin conception or virgin birth, you know what they're trying to do. They're trying to destroy the faith. And we can have confidence that Isaiah 7.14 was given to men and it has a partial fulfillment or a near fulfillment and a greater fulfillment. The greater fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. So don't let people rock your boat or... uh, erode your faith by saying, hey, Matthew misinterpreted this. Matthew did not misinterpret Isaiah 7.14. And our faith in Christ and our faith in the Christian faith itself, that Christ came here, dwelt among us, was incarnated in flesh, that he died on a cross for our sins, rose again, and he offers salvation to those that will come in faith, stands still very, very strong. So I hope this Christmas season, as you look at 714, as you hear it quoted, read the Christmas story, you know that that's a solid promise from God that came true through Christ, and we can stake our eternity in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for 
um, being able to see how the Christian faith stands so solid to scrutiny and that you care for us. And as we think of this Christmas season, may it be a special time for each of us just to remember how much you loved us. And Father, that we will go with that message of your love to others. And Father, that we will love as you loved. And Father, give us opportunity to take that message to others. The message that if they'll repent and turn from their sins and trust in you, they too can have a Christmas to remember. We ask that this week you may give us opportunity to share our faith and that this week that we will encourage one another to good works and encourage each other on the path that we're on this journey called life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.